Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, everybody. We're wrapping up our series called Simplify this morning, and we're talking about the subject that you can't talk about this subject without, and that's stuff, wealth, and the number one clutterer of most of our lives as modern Westerners. Growing up in an affluent area, the son of a, an army colonel, we were not wealthy, but I got to observe a lot of people who were, and we would go to church every Sunday. And I remember one time when I was a kid, seeing something that, that stuck in my mind and burned an impression. It was after service, the pastor, you know, would slip out and go around and would stand there at the exit and greet everybody. Super kind, loving man. And I remember seeing somebody, I, I think goodheartedly, like shake his hand with a 20 in the palm and like slip it to him and be like, take your wife out to something nice. Like, what is that, like riblets at Applebee's? I mean, man. There's more inflation than I remember, but I just remember that. And, and this was long before I ever imagined being a pastor. But I just remember thinking, oh, I just like had that throw up in your mouth feeling that like I, not that. And it sort of started something in me that didn't really come back up until I did receive a call to ministry several years later when I was a college student on a summer missions trip. And then it didn't take long before those subroutines connected in the back of my mind. And as I started imagining how a life in ministry would go, I remember thinking, I'm not going to be the guy that has people slipping 20s in the handshake to me. I'll be the one slipping the 20s if there's any 20s being slipped. And, you know, I had gone to a, an elite prep school that my parents sent me to and then a, a, a college full of, of wealthy sort of overachieving kids and they're now like running Fortune 500 companies. And there was this sense of manifest destiny, this great expectation around us as students that perhaps we fomented because we wanted it to be true, that said, you owe it to the world to be successful. And so I remember thinking that I was going to kind of come up with a cheat code where you get to find your life without fully losing it. It was a sort of singular, just beneath the layer of conscious thought, uh, exception that I afforded myself that said I could have the world and the calling. And it took me years to identify this and then allow the Holy Spirit to root it out of me. And I think that probably as a 20th century American kid, I'm not alone in that experience. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus addresses just that propensity. He says in verse 13, someone in the crowd told him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. 
relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our title this morning as we wrap up our series, Rich Toward God. We're looking at the unrivaled power of wealth to encumber our lives and to rob us of the simplicity that we cultivate as a discipline in order to order our inner world and make room for the things that God wants to grow. In verse 16, it says, Jesus told him the parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? And this is the question of abundance. This is the question of affluence. What shall I do? America, of course, answers this question with capitalism. And I am an apologist for capitalism. While I do not believe it is synonymous with or even heavily overlaps Christianity, I think it's the best or perhaps the least bad social economic system the world has come up with because it enables more people to prosper. But we have baked capitalism into the dough of our Christian faith for so long that we don't know that it's a permutation and perhaps a perversion of the way of Jesus. Our answer to what shall I do is make that money grow by any means necessary, at all cost, multiply it, use wealth to create more wealth. And these are, I believe, responsible, good impulses, right? But when we make them synonymous with our faith, in other words, to serve Jesus, to be faithful to God, is to take our affluence and multiply it. That's where we fall into questionable territory. Accumulating wealth has this force, this power in us that complicates our lives and threatens to convolute our faith. That is not to say that if you do or if you have accumulated wealth that you have no faith. It simply says that it threatens to convolute our faith and without doubt, it complicates our lives. Jesus said, blessed are the poor and maybe he meant it euphemistically. Certainly he said many things that way, but there are some practical one-to-one correlative blessings of people who are have-nots. I remember Philip Yancey in the Jesus I Never Knew said, lucky are the unlucky. That was Jesus' message. The poor are blessed in the practical fact that they're able to respond to the good news because to them it is good and they're able to pursue the kingdom of God with an uncomplicated totality. We're made to serve God and to thrive at it in that way when we serve him with an uncomplicated totality, as Yancey said. And accumulating wealth undermines our ability to do that for two reasons. The first is that we're distracted by the constant question, what should I do with it? Do you remember Hurley in Lost? 
He's like an average Joe, sort of dumpy character. The reason that we learn in his backstory over the first couple seasons, he was in Australia and on the fateful flight that crashed on the island and then all of the lost stuff went down because he won the lottery. And though it seemed like a blessing, it ended up being a curse because everybody was pulling at him. Everybody wanted something from him. And then the weight of managing that suddenly accumulated wealth was overwhelming him. And secondly, accumulating wealth introduces constant competition for our heart's allegiance. It constantly pulls at the other end of a tug-of-war rope. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Make no mistake about it. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is not to say that to accumulate wealth is automatically to serve money. It is to say, however, that it threatens and tempts us to serve money constantly. Fast forward 12 years and Mari and I were pastoring at a big church down in Colorado Springs, serving God seeing in my life the fulfillment of that prophetic sense of calling that I received back at the age of 19. And there we were at 30. We had used my VA loan to buy a house early on with nothing down and seen it grow in an uptrending front range real estate market only to rent it out and become a landlord while buying another with the equity. And then Going from there, we went all in buying a patch of dirt, about three acres, in what would go on to be a prestigious and even exclusive gated community just north of the church, out where you could breathe and I could justify it a thousand ways where my kids could run around. But the fact is, we were 30 and we bought a lot to build a 6,000 square foot house in the neighborhood full of 55-year-old wealthy people. We were pastoring in a movement, the 90s megachurch movement, that modeled for us, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can find your life while almost losing it, as it turns out. But we saw celebrity pastors getting elevated, getting wealthy, becoming a big deal, and we're like, Mari probably wasn't. I was in my heart like, <laughs> yeah, there it is. Remembering that poor pathetic pastor being slipped the 20 by the haughty church member in his congregation. And so something unrighteous in me got fueled. And I don't blame the church, the 90s mega church movement or otherwise. This was sin in my own heart. But I do want to repent to you on behalf of pastors in America for modeling the wrong stuff and for getting rich and calling it Jesus. That's caused a lot of people hurt and disillusionment around Christianity and church. And frankly, I understand. I don't blame you. God said to him, verse 20, fool. I remember God saying that to me. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared 
Whose will they be? This is the second question Jesus asks rhetorically in this parable. And this is the question of mortality. We don't outlive God. We don't transcend one to one. We bump into inevitably a limitation that is inherent in humanity. And so serving wealth, Jesus points out, it's like an existential crisis waiting to happen. Because scripture makes clear, we can't take it with us. And thus, for that reason, it lacks the power ultimately to fulfill us in the way we are made to quest, to thirst for fulfillment. And the farther down the road we get, the older we become, the more we know that to be true. Ecclesiastes chapter five, Solomon writes, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. And this is a guy who hoarded wealth like nobody's business. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. I wonder if he's saying this autobiographically, looking at his own life and how he gained the whole world, as Jesus would say hundreds of years later, and forfeited his own soul. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? To amass, to accumulate, to strive, and to give our best strength in the best years of our lives to something that at the end of the day slips right through our fingers is, Solomon says, like chasing the wind. Do you remember in the 90s when if you were in the workforce newly then like I was, everybody had a, a management training day where we had a facilitator come in and teach us Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Did anyone read that or sit through that seminar? Really good stuff, right? One of the things he said that stuck with me is begin with the end in mind. Build in the direction and on the foundation that you want your life to be about when you get to the end. And he made an, a metaphoric illustration that I never forgot. He talked at length about a guy who gave the best strength and years of his life to climb the ladder. So focused was he all the while to get to the top, to get to the top ahead of and above other people and maybe instead of them, that it wasn't until he reached the top that he realized it he didn't like the wall it was leaning on. Jesus himself said, what good will it be to someone gains the whole world and yet forfeits their soul? To mortgage what is true and eternal, the God spark in us for stuff that at the end of the day, we have to ask as the culmination, who's gonna get it? Maybe you amass a lot of stuff and a lot of wealth and you have to think, do I want to go down that well-worn path of creating dysfunctional, broken trust fund kids? Or do I want to just give it away to a bunch of charities? In the end, though, there's no cheating death 
and there's no taking it with us. And that alone makes serving wealth and possessions an existential crisis. So is the one, Jesus said in verse 21, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. The point isn't poverty. The point isn't you would do better not to pursue wealth or to avow poverty. His point rather is to use wealth in a better way. To use it purposefully and intentionally. To recognize that it is not money, but the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And money, more than anything else, vies to be an end rather than a means to other ends. Jesus' point? Make it a means to another end. To be rich toward God. There is a movement throughout the church's history that's popped up generation to generation It's asceticism. It's taken different forms and terminology, but the idea is the ascetic is the person whose end goal, whose religious objective is self-denial or self-abnegation, right? And so the ascetic is the one who wore the hair shirt or the one who would live intentionally below the poverty line in order to demonstrate seriousness about God. And Jesus' point seems rather to be Don't serve wealth, but rather, to the extent that you have it, use it to be rich toward God. And if you don't have it, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, don't wear yourself out to get rich, because how many of you know it's possible to love money even if you don't have any? In fact, some of the people that struggle with it most have at least Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus famously said, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's like Jesus is foreshadowing planned obsolescence. Have you ever bought a computer or a TV and found yourself while you're checking out thinking, this thing's going to be obsolete, like the internal processor in this smart TV is going to turn dumb in like a year and a half, and it's going to take too long to get to Netflix, and so I'm going to feel like I got to go out and buy a better TV that's bigger or sharper or smarter or curvedder or flatter or whatever Like this thing has been getting obsolete while it was in the box in plastic wrap on the shelf. And Jesus' point is not that that's bad. Maybe it is bad if they program it into your phone so that one day your phone works fine, the next day you have no choice on a software update and then your phone doesn't work fine so you gotta go out and buy another $1,000 phone. Maybe that's bad. But I don't know if Jesus was getting into all that. He was saying though, like look, here's the thing about stuff. Moths, are going to eat it. Thieves are going to steal it. Rust is going to corrode it. Stuff lacks the lasting power to anchor your soul. It cannot carry that weight. 
So don't store up your treasure. Don't put your eggs in that basket and consider that your life's consistence is in it. Use it. But man, be careful not to love it. He says, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he goes on to say, moths don't happen there. There's no planned obsolescence. These treasures are eternal, a much better investment for the costly stuff of your soul. And so this is, I think, what Jesus is getting at when he says to be rich toward God. He's teaching the discipline that we've been talking about, the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Not having nothing, but being unencumbered to serve God with what Yancey called an uncomplicated totality. And Jesus teaches simplicity not as an end here, but as a means to an end, to the end of riches toward God, treasure in heaven. Paul goes on to develop Jesus' idea for the early church in 1 Timothy 6. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Do you hear echoes of what Jesus was saying? He doesn't say, teach those who are rich not to be rich, but not to serve their riches, not to let them rule over them. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money instead to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. Listen, so that they may experience true life. And see, therein lies Jesus' point. This is the method in the madness. It's not that he wants us to be poor or to deny wealth so that by our misery, we'll show how religious we truly are. That's asceticism. His point instead is to unencumber our hearts so that we may experience that for which he came, that we would have life, and have it abundantly, have it to the full. And he knows, having made us, the power that money and possessions have to grip us, to distract us, and to keep us in an inferior sort of life. And so Jesus said, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. What does it look like to live rich toward God? First, very practically and simply, obey God with the tithe. Some of us have never heard that word. Others, perhaps it has a connotation that is negative because it's been pounded, disproportionately taught, or even abused. And again, for that, I'm sorry. I repent to you on behalf of pastors and churches that have played the money games and used scripture to justify it. But lest we throw out the baby with the bathwater, God's principle of the tithe endures for very clear and simple purpose. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says you must set aside a tithe of your crops. That is one-tenth of all you harvest each year. And for us, not being a primarily agrarian economy, that's our income. A tithe is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that simply means tenth. So we don't tithe 5%. We can give whatever percent we choose, but the tithe is a tenth. And that was God's instruction. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship. In other words, and it says this again and again in Scripture, the tithe is not ours to direct. I'm going to give 1% here and 1% there like we manage our investment portfolio. It says bring the whole tithe to the designated place of worship or to the storehouse in Malachi, the place where collectively the people of God surrender our control and collectively equip the church to be able to be more in the whole than the sum of the parts. And he says, this is the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Doing this, verse 23, will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. And see, that's why the tithe exists, and that's why it's so powerful. It's not that God needs to fund his operation. God himself is not short of cash. But the tithe substantiates our surrender. It's one thing to say, I trust you, God. It's another thing to trust God with the thing I value most. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And the tithe, God knows, asks us to trust him with what we in our society most value. Because if we can trust God with our money, we're likely to trust God with everything else. If we don't trust God with our money, but we say that we trust God, we're really just paying him lip service and holding close that which we really value most. We're putting another God before him. And so that, he says, is for the purpose of teaching us always to fear, to revere, to honor, not to cower before, but fear in the sense of recognizing the authority of the Lord, recognizing that, listen, my employer is not my provider. I don't get by by the sweat of my brow or the ingenuity that I demonstrate in my work. I get by because all I need, my God provides. And the tithe demonstrates, God, I believe that about you. And some would say, man, I can't live off of 90% of my income. And I think that the practical fact, if you were to zoom out and separate yourself by a year and talk to somebody else who said that, you might say something like, if you can't live off of 90% of your income, you can't live off of 100% of your income. And if we're finding that that's practically true because we're living off of like 106% of our income, we're mortgaged up to the hilt or we're upside down, then that's a message not not to trust God, but rather to reevaluate our financial priorities and to get our house in order. And a great way to do that, by the way, is the Financial Peace University class that's kicking off here in the next week or so. Anyone know exactly when that's kicking off? Shout it out. It just kicked off? Okay, so Financial Peace, maybe you jump in and catch up. That's a great practical way to order your financial world so that the tail of your money doesn't wag the dog. And if you're like, you know what, there's no way I could give to the Lord 10% of my income, fine. Start where you can and 
Instead, invest that energy, effort, and time into rightly ordering your finances. You will be amazed at the freedom and the peace that comes with that and in trusting God with your wealth at the outpouring of God's provision. I've found over the course of my adult life, Mari and I have always tithed and we came from tithing homes and we have had seasons of plenty and we have, season, have had seasons that were very lean, but we have never gone without and we have always seen God come through. Okay, living rich toward God. First, obey God with the tithe. Second, trust God for provision. And that's essentially the second, the other side of the coin that I was just talking about because it grows our faith. And as Kaysen pointed out in pastoring us in worship this morning, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Trusting God for provision is trusting God. Psalm 37 says the blameless, oh, I love this, spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. Do you see how this contrasts with stuff that moths eat up and thieves break in and steal? Stuff that doesn't last, that becomes obsolete or corrodes. With stuff that, as Solomon pointed out, we can't take with us into the great beyond. Oh, but to walk our lives under the Lord's care is to cultivate an assured inheritance that will transcend, that will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. When God called Mari and me to leave Colorado Springs and the job and the church and the life that we had there, it, it wasn't the thousands of friends, if I'm gut level honest in my heart of hearts, that was the most difficult for me. It was the house on three acres that I wanted to raise my kids in. The challenge to planting this church in a global economic recession, by the way, in 2009, which if as an aside, you're thinking about pioneering a new venture especially one that, that is funded by people's discretionary income, I would highly advise you to avoid global economic recessions as a time context, not by the playbook. But we didn't know, right? We just knew we couldn't sell our house and neither could our friends. And so we joined the club of 2009 accidental landlords. Anyone else spend time in that club? The hardest part of starting this church wasn't commuting an hour from Colorado Springs. It wasn't trying to generate a, a, a warm lead pool out of nothing in a city where Christianity was like 20 years out of vogue. It was carrying the weight and the complexity, the encumbrance of that house and that property and trying to sell it and not being able to sell it and having to live there, starting our kids there, spending the first year, you talk about not by the church planting playbook, commuting to the city every day in which we were supposed to plant a church being away from my kids because I was here in Denver into the evenings. And then finally, renting that house out, living in a tiny rental place in the outer territories of the Denver metro region in Parker, because I was as close as we could afford to be in while carrying the monstrosity in the springs, which seemed close <laughs> by comparison. And then 
managing the rental and the roller coaster road ride that that was for years and friends. Listen, God redeemed it and he taught me through it and he grew us through it. And ultimately the market came back and he blessed us by it. And that was how we ended up being able to live in the, the next millionaire's neighborhood that we live in that puts us in our parish right near the church, right? But the fact is the needless pain, the complication the encumbrance, the distraction, the fear, the at times, if I'm honest, abject fear of carrying that weight while planting a church. That was the cost for me. Now God has redeemed that in my life and used it to teach me to trust him with my wealth. But the impulse to amass, to accumulate. Man, the wheat and the tares grew up together, but I wish for you that you needn't learn that one in quite such a hard way. Obey God with the tithe. Trust God for provision. And I can tell you by way of testimony that in those difficult years, never did we miss a rent payment. Never were we unable to put food on the table. Never, even in response to my brokenness and foolishness, never was God unfaithful to provide. And then third, cultivate a heart of generosity. Because generosity toward others enriches your life in a way that Inanimate objects, possessions, never have the power to do. Cultivating a heart of generosity enriches your life. In Proverbs 11, the scripture says, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. My wife often says as a sort of mantra in our home and for our family and our church that generosity, it's not our obligation or mandate. Generosity is our privilege. And man, that's gotten into me. Coming from a background that was like hoard, amass, and hold on, giving away what God entrusts to me is fulfilling in a way that amassing and holding on has never been because it lacks the power to be. And giving away proves this principle that you'll often hear old wise Christians say, that you can't outgive God. The more generous we live, the more God entrusts resources to be generous because God's not just a loving father who doesn't want you begging bread. He's a savvy businessman. And if he sees a group of people that give sacrificially and generously as so many of you did just before the holiday season, the season of spending, right? To create a war chest of response called the Legacy Fund. Then the day an earthquake hits and thousands upon thousands tragically lose their lives, on the other side of the world, people will never meet 
we as a body are able already to be looking for who can we entrust resources to? Where can we be a part of the help? And we've already sent thousands of dollars of your generosity in mass to respond. And God says, when I find a steward, a businesswoman, a businessman who doesn't hold it like a reservoir, but lets it flow out, who wisely stewards, and then when I direct, when I speak, when opportunity or need arises, gives freely and generously, why wouldn't God entrust that manager with more? These are God's ideas. And man, are you faithfully fulfilling them. And so a life of generosity fulfills us because it connects with animate objects, humanity, people who have eternal destinies. You know, the best cars and homes are going ultimately to crumble and turn to dust. They don't go to heaven. They don't go to hell. Objects are amoral. They have no soul. But the least of these on the earth is an eternal splendor made in the image of God. We have the opportunity to come alongside, serve, help better, and how fulfilling that is, is difficult to share until you experience it. And then all the more, experiencing God, replenishing the war chest such that we can't outgive him. And being enriched, as scripture teaches, in every way so that every opportunity that, it, that arises, we can be generous. That is the way of God. So living rich toward God. It's the subject that sometimes is tender in church because it touches one on the tenderest and, and most sacred places in us and two, because too often it's been abused. But if we can leave aside or stay in the middle of the road from both of those ditches on either side, there is incredible blessing and the, the subject of simplifying our lives will have maximum fruit if we can trust God and surrender to him the thing that has mattered most, making room for all of the good that God wants to do in us and through us. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that indeed all we have needed, your hand hath provided. And oh, we're so grateful. Would you give us grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a minute here.